Chapters one and two of Adrift in New York. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. Adrift in New York by Horatio Alger Jr. Chapter one, the missing heir. Uncle, you are not looking well tonight. I'm not well, Florence. I sometimes doubt if I shall ever be any better. Surely, Uncle, you cannot mean. Yes, my child, I have reason to believe that I am nearing the end. I cannot bear to hear you speak so, Uncle," said Florence Linden, in irrepressible agitation. "You are not an old man; you are but fifty-four. True, Florence, but it is not years only that make a man old. Two great sorrows have embittered my life: first, the death of my dearly beloved wife. And next, the loss of my boy Harvey. It is long since I have heard you refer to my cousin's loss. I thought you had become reconciled. No, I do not mean that. I thought your regret might be less poignant. I have not permitted myself to speak of it, but I have never ceased to think of it day and night. John Linden paused sadly, then resumed. If he had died, I might, as you say, have become reconciled. But he was abducted at the age of four by a revengeful servant whom I had discharged from my employment. Heaven knows whether he is living or dead, but it is impressed upon my mind that he still lives. It may be in misery; it may be as a criminal, while I, his unhappy father, live on in luxury which I cannot enjoy, with no one to care for me. Florence Linden sank impulsively on her knees beside her uncle's chair. Don't say that, Uncle," she pleaded. "You know that I love you, Uncle John, and I too, Uncle." There was a shade of jealousy in the voice of Curtis Waring as he entered the library through the open door, and approaching his uncle, pressed his hand. He was a tall, dark-complexioned man, of perhaps thirty-five, with shifty black eyes and thin lips shaded by a dark mustache. It was not a face to trust. Even when he smiled, the expression of his face did not soften. Yet he could moderate his voice so as to express tenderness and sympathy. He was the son of an elder sister of Mr. Linden, while Florence was the daughter of a younger brother. Both were orphans, and both formed a part of Mr. Linden's household and owed everything to his bounty. Curtis was supposed to be in some business downtown, but he received a liberal allowance from his uncle, and often drew upon him for outside assistance. As he stood with his uncle's hand in his, he was necessarily brought near Florence, who instinctively drew a little away, with a slight shudder indicating repugnance. Slight as it was, Curtis detected it, and his face darkened. John Linden looked from one to the other. Yes, he said. I must not forget that I have a nephew and a niece. You are both dear to me, but no one can take the place of the boy I have lost. But it is so long ago, Uncle," said Curtis. "It must be fourteen years. It is fourteen years, and the boy is long since dead. No, no," said John Linden vehemently. "I do not. I will not believe it. He still lives, and I live only in the hope of one day clasping him in my arms." That is very improbable, Uncle," said Curtis in a tone of annoyance. "There isn't one chance in a hundred that my cousin still lives." The grave has closed over him long since. The sooner you make up your mind to accept the inevitable, the better. The drawn features of the old man showed that the words had a depressing effect upon his mind, 
but Florence interrupted her cousin with an indignant protest. "'How can you speak so, Curtis?' she exclaimed. "'Leave Uncle John the hope that he has so long cherished. I have a presentiment that Harvey still lives.' John Linden's face brightened up. "'You too believe it possible, Florence?' he said eagerly. "'Yes, Uncle. I not only believe it possible, but probable. How old would Harvey be if he still lived?' Eighteen, nearly a year older than yourself. How strange! I always think of him as a little boy. And I, too, Florence. He rises before me in his little velvet suit, as he was when I last saw him, with his sweet, boyish face, in which his mother's looks were reflected. Yet, if still living, interrupted Curtis harshly, he is a rough street boy, perchance serving his time at Blackwell's Island, and a hardened young ruffian, whom it would be bitter mortification to recognize as your son. "'That's the sorrowful part of it,' said his uncle, in a voice of anguish. "'That is what I most dread.' "'Then, since even if he were living you would not care to recognize him, why not cease to think of him, or else regard him as dead?' "'Curtis Waring, have you no heart?' demanded Florence, indignantly. "'Indeed, Florence, you ought to know,' said Curtis, sinking his voice into softly modulated accents." "'I know nothing of it,' said Florence coldly, rising from her recumbent position, and drawing aloof from Curtis. "'You know that the dearest wish of my heart is to find favor in your eyes. "'Uncle, you know my wish, and approve of it, do you not?' "'Yes, Curtis, you and Florence are equally dear to me, and it is my hope that you may be united. "'In that case, there will be no division of my fortune. It will be left to you jointly.' "'Believe me, sir,' said Curtis, with faltering voice, feigning an emotion which he did not feel. "'Believe me, that I fully appreciate your goodness. I am sure Florence joins with me.' "'Florence can speak for herself,' said his cousin coldly. "'My uncle needs no assurance from me. He is always kind, and I am always grateful.' John Linden seemed absorbed in thought. "'I do not doubt your affection,' he said, "'and I have shown it by making you my joint heirs in the event of your marriage.' "'But it is only fair to say that my property goes to my boy, if he still lives.' "'But, sir,' protested Curtis, "'is not that likely to create unnecessary trouble? "'It can never be known, and meanwhile, "'you and Florence will hold the property in trust.' "'Have you so specified in your will?' asked Curtis. "'I have made two wills. "'Both are in yonder secretary. "'By the first the property is bequeathed to you and Florence.' By the second and later, it goes to my lost boy, in the event of his recovery. Of course, you and Florence are not forgotten, but the bulk of the property goes to Harvey. I sincerely wish the boy might be restored to you, said Curtis, but his tone belied his words. Believe me, the loss of the property would affect me little, if you could be made happy by realizing your warmest desire. But, uncle, I think it only the part of a friend to point out to you, as I have already done, the baselessness of any such expectation. "'It may be as you say, Curtis,' said his uncle with a sigh. "'If I were thoroughly convinced of it, I would destroy the later will, and leave my property absolutely to you and Florence.' "'No, uncle,' said Florence impulsively. "'Make no change. Let the will stand.' Curtis, screened from his uncle's view, darted a glance of bitter indignation at Florence. "'Is the girl mad?' he muttered to himself. "'Must she forever balk me?' "'Let it be so for the present, then,' said Mr. Linden, wearily. "'Curtis, will you ring the bell? I am tired, and shall retire to my couch early.' "'Let me help you, uncle,' said Florence, eagerly. 
"'It is too much for your strength, my child. "'I am growing more and more helpless.' "'I, too, can help,' said Curtis. "'John Linden, supported on either side by his nephew and niece, "'left the room, and was assisted to his chamber. "'Curtis and Florence returned to the library. "'Florence,' said her cousin, "'my uncle's intentions, as expressed to-night, "'make it desirable that there should be an understanding between us. "'Take a seat beside me,' leading her to a sofa, "'and let us talk this matter over.' With a gesture of repulsion, Florence declined the proffered seat, and remained standing. "'As you please,' she answered coldly. "'Will you be seated?' "'No, our interview will be brief.' "'Then I will come to the point. Uncle John wishes to see us united.' "'It can never be,' said Florence decidedly. Curtis bit his lip in mortification, for her tone was cold and scornful. Mingled with this mortification was genuine regret. For, so far as he was capable of loving any one, he loved his fair young cousin. "'You profess to love Uncle John, and yet you would disappoint his cherished hope?' he returned. "'Is it his cherished hope?' "'There is no doubt about it. He has spoken to me more than once on the subject. Feeling that his end is near, he wishes to leave you in charge of a protector.' "'I can protect myself,' said Florence proudly. "'You think so. You do not consider the hapless lot of a penniless girl in a cold and selfish world.' "'Penniless?' repeated Florence, in an accent of surprise. "'Yes, penniless. Our uncle's bequest to you is conditional upon your acceptance of my hand.' "'Has he said this?' asked Florence, sinking into an armchair, with a helpless look. "'He has told me so more than once,' returned Curtis smoothly. "'You don't know how near to his heart this marriage is.' I know what you would say. If the property comes to me, I could come to your assistance. But I am expressly prohibited from doing so. I have pleaded with my uncle in your behalf, but in vain. Florence was too clear-sighted not to penetrate his falsehood. If my uncle's heart is hardened against me, she said, I shall be too wise to turn to you. I am to understand, then, that my choice lies between poverty and a union with you? You have stated it correctly, Florence. "'Then,' said Florence, arising, "'I will not hesitate. "'I shrink from poverty, for I have been reared in luxury. "'But I will sooner live in a hovel, or a tenement-house,' "'interjected Curtis with a sneer. "'Yes, or a tenement-house, than become the wife of one I loathe.' "'Girl, you shall bitterly repent that word,' said Curtis, stung to fury. "'She did not reply, but pale and sorrowful, "'glided from the room to weep bitter tears in the seclusion of her chamber.' CHAPTER Two, A STRANGE VISITOR Curtis Waring followed the retreating form of his cousin with a sardonic smile. "'She is in the toils. She cannot escape me,' he muttered. "'But—and here his brow darkened—it vexes me to see how she repels my advances, as if I were some loathsome thing. If only she would return my love. For I do love her, cold as she is. I should be happy. Can there be a rival?' But no, we live so quietly that she has met no one who could win her affection. Why can she not turn to me? Surely I am not so ill-favoured, and though twice her age, I am still a young man. Nay, it is only a young girl's caprice. She shall yet come to my arms, a willing captive. His thoughts took a turn, as he arose from his seat and walked over to the secretary. So it is here that the two wills are deposited, he said to himself, one making me a rich man the other a beggar. While the last is in existence I am not safe, the boy may be alive, and liable to turn up at any moment. 
if only he were dead, or the will destroyed. Here he made a suggestive pause. He took a bunch of keys from his pocket, and tried one after another, but without success. He was so absorbed in his work that he did not notice the entrance of a dark-browed, broad-shouldered man, dressed in a shabby corduroy suit, till the intruder indulged in a short cough, intended to draw attention. Starting with guilty consciousness, Curtis turned sharply around, and his glance fell on the intruder. "'Who are you?' he demanded angrily. "'And how dare you enter a gentleman's house unbidden?' "'Are you the gentleman?' asked the intruder, with intentional insolence. "'Yes.' "'You own this house?' "'Not at present. It is my uncle's.' "'And that secretary, pardon my curiosity, is his?' "'Yes, but what business is it of yours?' Not much, only it makes me laugh to see a gentleman picking a lock. You should leave such business to men like me. You are an insolent fellow, said Curtis, more embarrassed than he liked to confess, for this rough-looking man had become possessed of a dangerous secret. I am my uncle's confidential agent, and it was on business of his that I wished to open the desk. Why not go to him for the key? Because he is sick. But pshaw, why should I apologize or give any explanation to you? What can you know of him or me? More, perhaps, than you suspect, said the intruder quietly. Then you know, perhaps, that I am my uncle's heir? Don't be too sure of that. Look here, fellow, said Curtis, thoroughly provoked. I don't know who you are, nor what you mean, but let me inform you that your presence here is an intrusion, and the sooner you leave the house the better. I will leave it when I get ready. Curtis started to his feet, and advanced to his visitor with an air of menace. "'Go at once,' he exclaimed angrily, "'or I will kick you out of the door.' "'What's the matter with the window?' returned the stranger, with an insolent leer. "'That's as you prefer, but if you don't leave at once I will eject you.' By way of reply, the rough visitor coolly seated himself in a luxurious easy-chair, and, looking up into the angry face of Waring, said, "'Oh, no, you won't.' "'And why not, may I ask?' said Curtis, with a feeling of uneasiness, for which he could not account. "'Why not? Because in that case I should seek an interview with your uncle, and tell him—' "'What? That his son still lives, and that I can restore him to his—' The face of Curtis Waring blanched. He staggered, as if he had been struck, and he cried out hoarsely, "'It is a lie!' "'It is the truth, begging your pardon.' "'Do you mind my smoking?' And he coolly produced a common clay pipe, filled and lighted it. "'Who are you?' asked Curtis, scanning the man's features with painful anxiety. "'Have you forgotten Tim Bolton?' "'Are you Tim Bolton?' faltered Curtis. "'Yes, but you don't seem glad to see me.' "'I thought you were—' "'In Australia. So I was three years since. Then I got homesick and came back to New York. "'You have been here three years?' "'Yes,' chuckled Bolton.' "'You didn't suspect it, did you?' "'Where?' asked Curtis, in a hollow voice. "'I keep a saloon on the Bowery. There's my card. Call around when convenient.' Curtis was about to throw the card into the grate, but on second thought dropped it into his pocket. "'And the boy?' he asked slowly. "'Is alive and well. He hasn't been starved. Though I dare say you wouldn't have grieved if he had.' "'And he is actually in the city?' "'Just so.' Does he know anything of—you know what I mean? He doesn't know that he is the son of a rich man, and heir to the property which you look upon as yours. That's what you mean, isn't it? Yes, what is he doing? Is he at work? 
He helps me some in the saloon, sells papers in the evenings, and makes himself generally useful. Has he any education? Well, I haven't sent him to boarding school or college, answered Tim. He don't want no Greek or Latin or mathematics. Phew, that's a hard word. You didn't tell me you wanted him made a scholar of. I didn't. I wanted never to see or hear from him again. What made you bring him back to New York? Couldn't keep away, Governor. I got homesick, I did. There ain't but one bowery in the world, and I hankered after that. Didn't I pay you money to keep away, Tim Bolton? I don't deny it, but what's three thousand dollars? Why, the kids cost me more than that. I've had the care of him for fourteen years, and it's only about two hundred a year. You have broken your promise to me, said Curtis sternly. There's worse things than breaking your promise, retorted Bolton. Scarcely had he spoken than a change came over his face, and he stared open mouthed behind him and beyond Curtis. Startled himself, Curtis turned and saw, with a feeling akin to dismay, the tall figure of his uncle standing on the threshold of the left portal, clad in a morning gown, with his eyes fixed inquiringly upon Bolton and himself. End of chapters one and two.